Chapter Twelve of the Struggles of Brown, Jones, and Robinson by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Samson and Delilah. In the commercial world of London, there was one man who was really anxious to know what were the actual facts of the case with reference to Johnson of Manchester. This was Mr. William Brisket whose mind at this time was perplexed by grievous doubts. He was called upon to act in a case of great emergency, and was by no means sure that he saw his way. It had been hinted to him by Miss Brown, on the one side, that it behoved her to look to herself and take her pigs to market without any more shilly-shallying, by which expression the fair girl had intended to signify that it would suit her now to name her wedding day. And he had been informed by Mr. Brown on the other side that that sum of five hundred pounds should now be forthcoming, or, if not actually the money, Mr. Brown's promissory note at six months should be handed to him, dated from the day of his marriage with Mary Ann. Under these circumstances he did not see his way, that the house in Bishopsgate Street was doing a large business, he did not doubt. He visited the place often, and usually found the shop crowded. But he did doubt whether that business was very lucrative. It might be that the whole thing was a bubble, and that it would burst before that bill should have been honored. In such case he would have saddled himself with an empty-handed wife, and would decidedly not have seen his way. In this emergency he went to Jones and asked his advice. Jones told him confidentially that though the bill of the firm for five thousand pounds would be as good as paper from the Bank of England, the bill of Mr. Brown himself as an individual would be worth nothing. Although Mr. Brisket had gone to Jones as a friend, there had been some very sharp words between them before they separated. Brisket knew well enough that all the ready money at the command of the firm had belonged to Mr. Brown, and he now took upon himself to say that Marianne had a right to her share. Jones replied that there was no longer anything to share, and that Marianne's future husband must wait for her fortune till her father could pay it out of his income. "'I couldn't see my way like that. Not at all,' said Brisket and then there had been high words between them. It was at this time that the first act of Johnson of Manchester's little comedy was being played, and people in Mr. Brisket's world were beginning to talk about the matter. "'They must be doing a deal of trade,' said one. "'Believe me, it's all flash and sham,' said another. "'I happen to know that old Brown did go down to Manchester and see Johnson there,' said the first. There is no such person at all, said the second. So this went on till Mr. Brisket resolved that his immediate matrimony should depend on the reality of Johnson's existence. If it should appear that Johnson, with all his paper, was a false meteor, that no one had deceived the metropolitan public, that no one had been taken and had then escaped, he would tell Miss Brown that he did not see his way. The light of his intelligence told him that promissory notes from such a source 
even though signed by all the firm, would be illusory. If, on the other hand, Johnson of Manchester had been taken, then he thought he might accept the bill, and wife. Marianne, he said to the young lady early on that day on which she had afterwards had her interview with Robinson, what's all this about Johnson of Manchester? I know nothing about your Johnsons, nor yet about your Manchester, said Miss Brown, standing with her back to her lover. At this time she was waxing wroth with him, and had learned to hate his voice when he would tell her that he had not yet seen his way. That's all very well, Marianne, but I must know something before I go on. Who wants you to go on? Not I, I'm sure, nor anybody belonging to me. If I do hate anything, it's them mercenary ways. There's one who really loves me, and who'd be above asking for a shilling, if only I'd put out my hand to him. If you say that again, Marianne, I'll punch his head. You're always talking of punching people's heads, but I don't see you do so much. I shouldn't wonder if you don't want to punch my head some of these days. Marianne, I never raise a hand to a woman yet. And you'd better not, as far as I'm concerned, not as long as the pokers and tongs are about. And then there was silence between them for a while. Marianne, he began again, can't you find out about this Johnson? No, I can't, said she. You'd better. Then I won't, said she. I'll tell you what it is then, Marianne. I don't see my way the least in life about this money. Drat your way. Who cares about your way? That's all very fine, Marianne, but I care. I'm a man as is as good as my word, and always was. I defy Brown, Jones, and Robinson to say that I'm off carrying anybody's paper. And as for paper, it's a thing as I knows nothing about, and never wish. When a man comes to paper, it seems to me, there's a very thin wall betwixt him and the gutter. When I buys a score of sheep or so, I pays for them down, and when I sells a leg of mutton, I expects no less myself. I don't owe a shilling to no one, and don't mean and the less that any one owes me, the better I like it. But, Marianne, when a man trades in that way, a man must see his way. If he goes about in the dark, or with his eyes shut, he's safe to get a fall. Now about this five hundred pound, if I could only see my way. As to the good sense of Mr. Brisket's remarks, there was no difference of opinion between him and his intended wife. Miss Brown would at that time have been quite contented to enter into partnership for life on those terms. And though these memoirs are written with the express view of advocating a theory of trade founded on quite a different basis, nevertheless it may be admitted that Mr. Brisket's view of commerce has its charms, presuming that a man has the wherewithal but such a view is apt to lose its charms in female eyes if it be insisted on too often or too violently. Marianne had long since given in her adhesion to Mr. Brisket's theory, but now, weary with repetition of the lesson, she was disposed to rebel. Now, William Brisket, she said, just listen to me. 
if you talk to me again about seeing your way you may go and see it by yourself i'm not so badly off that i'm going to have myself twitted at in that way if you don't like me you can do the other thing and this i will say when a gentleman has spoken his mind free to a lady and a lady has given her answer free back to him it's a very mean thing for a gentleman to be saying so much about money after that of course a girl has got herself to look to and if i take up with you why of course i have to say stand off to any other young man as may wish to keep me company now there's one as shall be nameless that wouldn't demean himself to say a word about money because he ain't got none himself as i take it he's a partner in a first-rate commercial firm and i'll tell you what william brisket i'll not hear a word said against him and i'll not be put upon myself so now i wishes you good morning and so she left him brisket when he was alone scratched his head and thought wistfully of his love i should like to see my way said he i always did like to see my way and as for that old man's bit of paper then he relapsed once again into silence it was within an hour of all this that marianne had followed her father to george robinson's room she had declared her utter indifference as to johnson of manchester but yet it might perhaps be as well that she should learn the truth from her father she had tried to get it but he had succeeded in keeping her in the dark to jones it would be impossible that she should apply but from robinson she might succeed in obtaining his secret she had heard no doubt of samson and delilah and thought she knew the way to the strong man's locks and might it not be well for her to forget that other samson and once more to trust herself to her father's partner when she weighed the two young tradesmen one against the other balancing their claims with such judgment as she possessed she doubted much as to her choice she thought that she might be happy with either but then it was necessary that the other dear charmer should be away. As to Robinson, he would marry her, she knew, at once, without any stipulations. As to Brisket, if Brisket should be her ultimate choice, it would be necessary that she should either worry her father out of the money, or else cheat her lover into the belief that the money would be forthcoming. Having taken all these circumstances into consideration, she invited Mr. Robinson to tea. Mr. Brown was there, of course, and so also were Mr. and Mrs. Poppins. When Robinson entered, they were already at the tea-table, and the great demerits of Johnson of Manchester were under discussion. "'Now Mr. Robinson will tell us everything,' said Mrs. Poppins. "'It's about Johnson, you know.' where has he gone to mr robinson but robinson professed that he did not know he knows well enough said marianne only he's so close now do tell us he'll tell you anything you choose to ask him said mrs poppins tell me anything not him indeed what does he care for me i'm sure he would if he only knew what you were saying before he came into the room now don't polly 
Oh, but I shall, because it's better he should know. Now, Polly, if you don't hold your tongue, I'll be angry. Mr. Robinson is nothing to me, and never will be, I'm sure. Only, if he'd do me the favor, as a friend, to tell us about Mr. Johnson, I'd take it kind of him. In the meantime, Mr. Brown and his young married guest were discussing things commercial on their own side of the room, and Poppins also was not without a hope that he might learn the secret. Poppins had rather despised the firm at first, as not a few others had done, distrusting all their earlier assurances as to trade bargains, and having been even unmoved by the men in armor. But the great affair of Johnson of Manchester had overcome even his doubts, and he began to feel that it was a privilege to be noticed by the senior partner in a house which could play such a game as that. It was not that Poppins believed in Johnson, or that he thought that fifteen thousand pounds of paper had at any time been missing, but nevertheless the proceeding had affected his mind favorably with reference to Brown, Jones, and Robinson, and brought it about that he now respected them, and perhaps feared them a little, though he had not respected or feared them heretofore. Had he been the possessor of a wholesale house of business, he would not now have dared to refuse them goods on credit, though he would have done so before Johnson of Manchester had become known to the world. It may therefore be surmised that George Robinson had been right, and that he had understood the ways of British trade when he composed the Johnsonian drama. "'Indeed, I'd rather not, Mr. Poppins,' said Mr. Brown. "'Secrets in trade should be secrets. And though Mr. Johnson has done us a deal of mischief, we don't want to expose him. But you've been exposing him ever so long, pleaded Poppins. Now, Poppins, said that gentleman's wife, don't you be troubling Mr. Brown. He's got other things to think of than answering your questions. I should like to know myself, I own, because all the town's talking about it. And it does seem odd to me that Marianne shouldn't know. I don't, then, said Marianne, and I do think when a lady asks a gentleman, the least thing a gentleman can do is to tell. But I shan't ask no more, not of Mr. Robinson. I was thinking, but never mind, Polly, perhaps it's best as it is. Would you have me betray my trust? said Robinson. Would you esteem me the more because I had deceived my partners? If you think that I am to earn your love in that way, you know but little of George Robinson. Then he got up, preparing to leave the room, for his feelings were too many for him. Stop, George, stop, said Mr. Brown. Let him go, said Marianne. If he goes away now, I shall think him as hard as Adam, said Mrs. Poppins. There's three to one against him, said Mr. Poppins to himself. What chance can he have? Mr. Poppins may probably have gone through some such phase of life himself. Let him go, said Marianne again. I wish he would, and then let him never show himself here again. George Robinson, my son, my son, exclaimed the old man. It must be understood that Robinson had heard all this, though he had left the room. Indeed, 
it may be surmised that had he been out of hearing the words would not have been spoken he heard them for he was still standing immediately beyond the door and was irresolute whether he would depart or whether he would return george robinson my son my son exclaimed the old man again he shall come back said mrs poppins following him out the door he shall come back though i have to carry him myself polly said marianne if you so much as whisper a word to ask him i'll never speak to you the longest day you have to live but the threat was thrown away upon mrs poppins and under her auspices robinson was brought back into the room marianne said he will you renounce william brisket laws george said she of course she will said mrs poppins and all the pomps and vanities besides my son my son said old brown lifting up both his hands my daughter my daughter my children my children and then he joined their hands together and blessed them he blessed them and then went down into the shop but before the evening was over delilah had shorn samson of his locks and so there wasn't any johnson after all said she but robinson as he returned home walked again upon roses End of chapter 12 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina